welcome to Trinity, and uh, it's great to have you here. We are excited, not just because we're starting uh, in the afternoons, which is a, a big shift. Everyone knows church is supposed to be in the mornings, but we've moved to the afternoons because we want it to be accessible to as many people as possible. And so we're excited about that. We're also excited about a new series. And uh, we just finished up a series leading up to Easter, and now we're starting a new series. It's what we call a value series. A value series is where we take uh, one or some of the church values and we say, instead of just mentioning them, which we often do at the start, we want to preach them. We want to really get them uh, right into our thinking for a few weeks. So we're going to take four weeks and we're going to zero in on some of the church, well, really just one of the church values. And hopefully this will be a really helpful thing for us. When we started uh, way, way back in 2014, uh, when Trinity Chippet have started, we decided we want this church to be based on and driven by a set of values. Uh, if you've been around churches uh, for a while, you'll know that it's very easy for churches to become a little bit controlled by preferences, you know, and kind of the, the grumpiest person wins and, and then things kind of go their way and you can't offend anybody and you know how it is. And we said we want to kind of preempt that whole issue from the start. So let's agree on a set of values that we think are representing God's heart for this church from his word and then we'll kind of stick to those. And so whenever there's a discussion or a conversation, we'll say, well, hang on, what value supports that preference? Because we're not so concerned about the preferences as we are about the values. So, we're uh, just going to put some values up on the screen for you, and um, normally we just kind of mention one at a time. I'm going to have them right here in front of me so that uh, I don't have to keep turning around. And so, as we think about the values, there's actually an overarching statement. You can get these uh, values, that's not working, you can get these values on the website, you can get them in the church handbook. If you're, you're new here, I'd love to give you a handbook so you can kind of see the, the inner workings of the church. But there's a statement over the whole thing. It says, the gospel is an invitation to the Father revealed in Christ and poured out into our hearts by the Spirit. So we desire to live lives of wholehearted response shaped by the following values. So what's driving us is the gospel. It's the reality of who God is and what he's done. And then we've got a, a set of values that kind of come under three titles. And so uh, loving God, loving one another, and loving our neighbors. That's kind of obvious stuff, right? That's what we want to be uh, driving us as a church. And so when we go through these, I won't read all of them, but we'll just uh, at least flash them up in front of you. First of all, loving God. There's three of those. They're focused on uh, kind of how we relate to God. We want to keep the Bible very much at the center of what we do. We want to have prayer and worship be a significant part of the church life. We want God's character to be reflected in our lives in the way that we live. Then the second group is a group of values focusing on loving one another. And so these are talking about things like healthy relationships and healthy families and households. We want to kind of care for one another and look after one another and also be growing and developing as people who are participating in the life of the church. Okay, so there's the, the big batch. And then the last one, loving our neighbors. This is about showing care beyond ourselves, making church as welcoming and as friendly and as accessible environment as possible, but also going out and taking the message of God's love out to a world that's so desperate to hear it. So there's a quick run through. If we go onto the next slide here, this is the one that we're going to focus in on for this month. Okay, investing time to build healthy relationships characterized by authenticity and grace. 
That's what we want to ponder. That's what we want to think about. What does it take to create a community that is healthy, uh, marked by healthy relationships, the kind of relationships where you can be real and you can feel safe? And in the world, this world, there's not many places where you can feel both real and safe, where you can have authenticity, you know, take the mask off, this is the real me, warts and all, here are the struggles, and I know that I'm not going to be condemned for that. I know that I'm going to be loved, and I'm going to be safe, and therefore, uh, it creates a healthy environment, healthy relationships. And that's something that is actually very rare in the world. It's actually sadly rare in churches, too. But that's what we want to to have here at Trinity. And it's not that we don't have that. We really do feel that there's a lot of positives, really positive things here. This is the most loving, caring group of people I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. But we're just cheering it on and we're just kind of infusing uh, ourselves for the next month about this because we want to go from good to better. We just want to enjoy more and more of what God has for us as a community of God's people, loving and caring for one another. Okay, so that's the goal. So the name of the series uh, is A Supernatural Community. Now, any images that come to mind uh, from TV about supernatural, forget them. The word supernatural means something that's greater than what's naturally possible. All right, so we can think about creating community, and actually a lot of people do that. Companies do that. You get um, marketing, sorry, uh, um, HR gurus coming in trying to create the right atmosphere in the workplace, Uh, You get uh, politicians trying to create an atmosphere in a country. So a lot of people try to to kind of manufacture and socially engineer healthy community. But what we're looking at this month is something that goes beyond what we can do. By nature, by our uh, own purposes and plans, we can kind of design environments. We can uh, kind of encourage certain things and discourage other things. We can try to put some enthusiastic people into the mix who, you know, are kind of catalytic people who can change things. There's all of that, but it's only going to go so far. What we're talking about is something that goes beyond that, something that has to be God at work in his people. And when God creates a community, when God is at work by his spirit, moving people together, creating an environment of authenticity and grace, that is something that is truly, truly wonderful to be a part of and to be exposed to. And so that's the goal. That's what we want to be pursuing and pressing towards in these next few weeks. Now, let's grab our Bibles. There's just a verse that we want to start with. We're actually going to go back to the Old Testament for the, the kind of the main focus of the message. But we'll start with a verse in 1 John. So page 1023 in the, the church Bibles, which, by the way, you are welcome to take one of those home. If you don't have a Bible, we would much rather you have one than we store it all week. You take it, we'll replace it, okay? So please help yourself to the Bible. So page 1023, 1 John chapter 4. This is a letter written by John, one of the apostles, disciples, followers of Jesus. And he's writing to a church, and this church has gone through some struggles and and some heartbreak and some relational tensions. And he's encouraging the believers. And so it's a perfect passage for us because we want to be very much uh, encouraging one another. Uh, So 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it's a very simple verse, but it's absolutely key to what we're talking about this month. We love... 
because he first loved us. We love, some Bibles say we love God, and that's true too, but it just says we love at all because God first loved us. Very simple principle, but that's where we have to begin because otherwise, a series like this can very easily degenerate into kind of a cracking of the whip. Come on, people, we've got to love each other. But actually, it doesn't really work that way, does it? Just being told to love doesn't stir anything within any of us. And so this is a key principle that how is it possible for us to become and grow as a loving community? Well, we've got to start with God. We've got to start by, uh, if you like, having our tanks filled by his love before we try to give love to one another. Notice in the surrounding passage, just a couple of things here. First of all, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John, I love John's writings because when John wrote, he was absolutely gripped by the wonder of the love that God has within himself. The reason we're called Trinity Chippenham is because uh, we're so captured by uh, the biblical teaching on the Trinity that for all eternity, before anything else existed, there was God. And what was God doing? He wasn't obsessing about himself. He wasn't obsessing about how he could get creatures to obey or anything like that he was absolutely captivated with the other the father loving the son the son loving the father the father loving the son by the spirit and the son responding to the father by the spirit so that God himself is a perfect if you like a supernatural community that's who God is and that nature of who God is his love father for son son for father that's like a the Bible describes it as being like a fountain, that there's so much love going back and forth between father and son that it, it sort of spills out and it spills down. That's why there was a creation. That's why God has rescued and saved us because he wants to love because he has so much love to give. And so the father loving son, loving father by the spirit spills outwards so we can love one another because God is love. You see, if we're going to talk about a supernatural community, we've got to be gripped by this truth that a supernatural community is a God thing. It's not an our effort thing. We can never manufacture what we're talking about here. It's got to be a God thing, but God is infinitely able to do it because that's the very nature of who he is. He, he spills over his love toward us. Drop down to verse 13. Uh, John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The spirit that communicates the love of the Father to the Son and the love of the Son to the Father, he's given us that spirit to communicate to us that we are loved and to stir our hearts to respond in, in love for God. He carries on through the passage. We're not going to focus in here. I'm tempted, but I'm trying to resist the urge here because I want to get to the Old Testament. But verse 16, he says, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. He repeats it again. And so he keeps on going down talking about how God's demonstrated his love and, and how we are loved by God. And so we love because he first loves us. It's an amazing passage, amazing reality that a community 
shaped by God's spirit is going to be a community marked and characterized by a profound love for one another. Just think about the world and the culture around us. There are a lot of good things going on. I don't want to sound all doom and gloom. But really, where in the world do you get the genuine sense that you can be real and you can be safe and that there's no one's going to kind of gossip and, and, and you know, spread rumors and no one's going to cut you down if you admit any weakness? I remember making a comment a few years ago about uh, the pub, and I, I said that a lot of people in our culture find what they should find in the church, they find it in the pub, because they, they kind of trust it more. And afterwards, this man came up to me, and he kind of gave me a dressing down. He said, young man, you've never been to pubs much, have you? I said, well, you know, watch the old football match. He said, yeah, it's not what you're describing. He said, I lived in pubs for 30 years, and I can tell you it is not a loving environment. It's horrible painful you kind of you go in with your guard up and you survive I apologized profusely I thanked him for the input and saved me 30 years of learning that lesson but it's true isn't it the world is not a place characterized by an abundance of love and care and concern for one another and so that's why we want to be a church that reflects the nature of God and reflects the kind of community that he wants to create And if we're going to have a supernatural community, we've got to start with this fact that a supernatural community is a God thing. It's not an us thing, it's a God thing. But then you might say, well, that's all very well, but what about all these other people? Because actually, it's quite nice talking in theory. You know, during the sermon, I can say nice things about community and people can kind of do their sort of gentle British, mm, you know, it'd be different in other cultures. But, you know, there can be this kind of, yes, yes, sort of response. But actually, the reality, people, people are hard to, to sort of live with, you know, to interact with. We've been going, what, 16 months as a church? I'm sure there have been countless hurts and offenses already inevitably I'm sure that I've hurt and offended many of you already not trying to I can assure you but but sometimes you know the way you say something or you're a bit tired at life group and something comes out the wrong way or you send an email too quickly without thinking it through and and very easy isn't it for for people to kind of go "Ooh, ow you know one of the things I appreciate here is that I've been told that several times people have said hey that email kind of hurt or when you said that I don't know if that's how you meant it, but it kind of it felt a bit sharp. And, and I'm thankful for that because that gives me the chance to go, oh, my word, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it that way, but I, I am so sorry it came out. And, you know, forgive me. And, you know, I, we, we need that because we can talk about supernatural, glorious, loving community. But we don't want to name names. We're trying not to look around. But inside, we may be thinking, yeah, but do you know who's in this room? They're not always the easiest to love. Or maybe you're, you're more spiritual and mature and you're saying, actually, there's me and I'm not always easy to love. And so on the one hand, we have the fact that a supernatural community is a God thing. And on the other hand, we have the fact that a supernatural community is a messy thing. It's not this easy thing where we preach a sermon, you know, make a, a commitment, and then it's the, the most wonderful ride. Church life is going to involve kind of butting heads, 
graciously with one another. It's going to involve people saying things and doing things or not saying things or not smiling at you when they don't, they're not even thinking about you, but you feel it or you walk past and they don't shake your hand or whatever it is, little things and maybe even big things. And the reality is that over time, it's very easy, isn't it, to just put the barriers up and just to go into our shell and to protect And before you know it, a community that starts with all the right values can very easily become very plastic, very smiley on a Sunday, but not very real. So how do we avoid that? We can't avoid it by being perfect. None of us are that good. All right, I, I certainly at first to say I'm not, but some of you, you know, a bit closer. But none of us are good enough to just get it right all the time. So how are we going to have and continue to develop a community that is just spilling over with God's type of love? That's the question this, this afternoon. That's the thing that I want us to think about. And in a sense, we've already answered it. If a supernatural community is a God thing, then we have to get our eyes on God. It's as we, as we realize, as we ponder, as we dwell on how much God has loved us that we will be able to love one another. I suppose over the next uh, couple of weeks, three weeks, we're going to talk about some, some specifics. We're going to talk about grace and authenticity. We're even going to talk about time, just that it takes time with people to, you know, to, to form connections and to, uh, to really grow close with one another. And so I suppose on a human level, uh, it's fair to say that if community is going to happen, what do we have to do? Well, I, I don't want to give a, a long list at all. I'm going to keep it really simple. We kind of need to lean forward. We need to lean into the community. Otherwise, how is it possible for it to grow close? Sadly, the only way that a community can grow close with somebody that isn't leaning in often is tragedy. It's when something, the floor just falls through in their life and suddenly they feel the love of the church coming and drawing them in. But, but we don't want to kind of go that way, do we? That's not our preference. And so when we think about the, the schedule of the church, for example, let me just mention another factor, another thing that you'll see in the, the website or in the, the church handbook, and then we'll get to the Old Testament. We've got this thing called the uncluttered menu. Uh, and the, the idea behind that is that, have you ever been to a restaurant where they come with the menu and it's like a, an A1 poster laminated, and every square millimeter has got something on it? There's fish, there's pies, there's chicken, there's burgers. You know, you've got the sides, you've got the desserts, you've got the drinks on the back, oh my word. You've got, you know, oh, onion rings and you've got garlic bread. And it's just completely overwhelming. And, and, and I find sometimes my appetite fades as I look at a menu like that. Because it's probably not going to be very good. Well, we, we said, hey, as a church, why don't we avoid that kind of, hey, welcome to Trinity. This is what we do. You know, we do onion rings and we do this and we do that. We, we said, no, let's keep it uncluttered. Let's just say, very simple, there's three things on the menu. Three things that if you were to come and say, hey, I'm new here, what, what should I do? What would you recommend? We're always going to tell you there's three things that we would encourage you to participate in. Three things that, that if, if you give yourself to these three, that's great. Anything else is a bonus. There will be other things. Okay, there's open house and there's a, there's a housewarming at the Dexter's on, um, when is that, Saturday? You know, there's different things going on. There'll be workshops and seminars and courses and stuff. Great. But actually, the menu is, is three. There's Sunday church, that's this. There's life group. And there's free to connect. 
Let me explain those. Sunday church, this is kind of like hub central. This is church central where on Sundays you get to shake hands with lots of people and smile at lots of people. It probably isn't the place for great in-depth conversations, although you're welcome to try. But I find if I miss a Sunday that I'm kind of struggling to feel connected because I've missed the hub, you know? And then there's life group. And really, if you're going to say, where's the core of the church? We'd say life group is the thing. Life group is small community of people where you can encourage and love and care for one another. It takes time. It isn't easy. They don't always work. Groups don't always gel. But they can become the absolute highlight of the week. And so we really put a lot of energy and prayer into life groups. If someone uh, comes along and says, hey, well, you know, I'm new to the church, what we tend to say is, well, come on Sundays for a few weeks, just kind of get to know a few people, get a feel for the church, and then we'd love to plug you into a life group. We're going to need to add more life groups this year. It's, it's fantastic. So there's life groups. That's where community and, and conversation and interaction can happen. And then there's this third one called free to connect. And what we've said is let's put a fence around our schedules. Let's guard ourselves from just filling up the week. You know, it's very easy. A lot of churches, twice on Sunday, life group, and then prayer meeting, and then a ministry, and before you know it, four or five evenings are gone. It's just manic. We said, no, no, we're not going to go there. We're going to guard our schedule, and we're going to say, you know what, we're going to keep space in the schedule so that you can take your wife out, or you and your husband can go out on a date night, and it's okay. You know, you can do something with your family, actually get to know your children. So that's important. That counts. You can do a barbecue with your neighbors, or you can bring someone over from church and hang out and play a game of Monopoly. Whatever you prefer, it's up to you, but there's space in the schedule to allow it because we believe that relationships are that important. And so that's practical stuff we're going to talk about. We're going to think about that. But even so, how does it work in the mess of relating to people who let you down? who fail you, who who will offend you willingly at times and certainly unwillingly a lot. How is it possible to love people who are sometimes, let's face it, unlovely? I want us to go to a passage in the Old Testament to really dwell on just one reality this afternoon, and that is God's love for us. And so in a sense, we can put all of our concern about each other and all the issues. Let's just put those to one side for one minute, uh, a few minutes, and let's say, okay, what about God's love for me? How much has he loved me? I need my tanks filled in order to be loving toward others. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. It's on page 629 in a church Bible. And this passage, I was spending time with it this week, absolutely gripping as a passage. Powerful, slightly awkward almost to preach, but it's, it's, it's so clear in, in what it says that we've got to hear the message of Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah was a prophet. Okay? He was a spokesman for God. In, uh, in Israel and in the country of Judah, Israel had divided into two nations. So there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom ended up being taken away and, and kind of dispersed, and there was the southern kingdom left, and they were just a mess. They were, they were in relationship with God, but they were completely unfaithful to him, persistently unfaithful. And Jeremiah 3 gives us a glimpse into the kind of God that we have. Okay, so <laughs> they'd be screaming even more if they heard this passage, tell you they wouldn't understand it. But Jeremiah chapter 3 actually follows Jeremiah chapter 2. That's amazing insight. Jeremiah chapter 2, he he starts off 
his book with this really powerful uh, set of images. God speaking to the nation, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how you were loving like a bride. It's like we were, we were married, and I remember like the honeymoon and how loyal you were to me, and I remember that stuff. But, but then he goes on and he talks about, I, I don't get it. How is it that you've turned away from me? He describes in 2 verse 13 how they'd gone from the fountain of living waters, this abundant source of refreshment and life that imagine in the Middle East what a fountain of living waters would sound like. And he says, you've turned from that and you've looked at this rock and you've just started chiseling away. Imagine chiseling into bedrock and just breaking it up one little chip at a time with the sweat pouring off day after day after day you've gone after this you're going to create your own water source you're going to look after yourself and you've given yourself to it and eventually you've created this cistern you've dug this cistern into solid rock and you're proud of yourself and then you wait and finally the rains come And as the rain starts to fall and you start watching, gradually you realize that the entire project was wasted because there's a crack at the bottom. And as fast as the water comes in, it seeps away. And all the time there's this fountain that you refuse to come to. Powerful image. Gets even stronger later on in the chapter. He says to them, uh, let's read it, 2.20. He says, long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, as in I set you free. But you said I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. That's strong stuff, right? What he's talking about there is how you're you're supposed to be in this relationship with God, Israel, and instead what you've done is you've set up idols, and they would set up their idols, little statues under the trees in these little groves or on the hills, on the high places. And he says, under every tree and on every hill, you have bowed down like a whore, because in God's eyes, being unfaithful with another God, going after something else, is like uh, like prostituting yourself. It's like committing spiritual adultery and through this passage God says again and again every hill every tree it's like he's saying to them there is not a hotel room in this town where you haven't been unfaithful to me shocking image isn't it and that's all background to chapter three and when we come to chapter three we get a taste of just how amazing God's grace is he's going to use the language of divorce Some of you have experienced that. You know the pain and the agony of divorce. God uses that language advisedly, deliberately. He's going to talk about betrayal. Some of you know what it's like to be betrayed and how it just rips you apart on the inside and and everything's changed forever. You know the pain of that. Maybe some of you have seen that in your parents as, a, as your parents have, uh, have just collapsed. Their marriage has gone uh, just completely wrong and, and you live with that agony to this day. God isn't using this language flippantly. He's using it because it's perfect for what's happened to him. He's going to talk about the law, the Old Testament law, and say, okay, is there provision in the law? If somebody divorces and then marries somebody else, is there a way for that original marriage to be restored? And the answer to that would be no. There's no way to get that back. Once somebody remarries somebody else, you can't put the first one back together. And God is setting that up to say, okay, so what do I do? Because my bride has not just divorced and married somebody else. My bride, every hotel room, 
my bride, every green tree, every hill, totally and absolutely unfaithful. You see, even as we head into this, you kind of go, well, how do we get from the awkwardness of loving people who are slightly awkward to this level of, of pain and agony? It's because God knows to an extreme what we experience in the tiniest of ways. Maybe in, in major ways with marriage failure, of course. But, but often the pains we go through and the things we suffer are, are relatively tiny and yet they hurt. But if we're able to look to God and see how his grace toward us is so overwhelming, then maybe we can show grace to one another. So let's read Jeremiah 3, starting at verse 1. He says this, verse 1, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him, becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? The answer is no. Would not that land be greatly polluted? Now he gets to the point. You have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Wow, that's strong stuff, isn't it? Because of the way they'd acted, God had withheld the reins, trying to get their attention because he loved them. And now they're kind of going, oh God, will you rescue us? And they're, they're kind of going a bit religious. And God says, yeah, but you've done every evil that you possibly could. There's nothing you could have done that you haven't done. That's how unfaithful to me you've been. And he carries on with more of the same. Verse 6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, is speaking now about the northern kingdom. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah, that's the southern kingdom, saw it. This nation that had become two nations, the southern kingdom observed the northern kingdom, saw what they were like, how unfaithful they were. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. God had said, okay, you want that? I'm going to let you go. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. God is looking on a situation that has been going on for centuries. And he describes the faithlessness of his people. The northern kingdom were terrible. The southern kingdom, even worse. They just kept going. And now they're, they're being religious, you know, do a little offering, you know, attend church, that kind of stuff. But it's just in pretense. And God says it, it's not real. How much of a comfort is it to have a spouse that comes home after being out with other people, but their heart's not there? How much of a comfort is it to have somebody come back just to go through the, the kind of the routine, but really their, their heart is somewhere else? That's agony. 
And God knows what that's like. He experienced that with Israel. And if we're honest, there have been times where he's experienced that with us. And so what provision is there? For, for somebody who's, who's left their spouse and has gone off and has, has committed adultery with every single possible person they could, what way back is there? The answer legally would be there's no way back. But God. It doesn't say that here, but this is one of those moments in the Bible where it absolutely needs a but God because God doesn't feel constrained by the limits of human love. God's not constrained by the the, the extent to which we can go. His grace goes further and it's greater and it's more abundant and it's more amazing than we could ever imagine. And so he carries on here, verse 11, just jump over that down to verse 12. Here's a proclamation from God. He says, return faithless Israel. It's a message for the north who've already gone off, but it's kind of so the southern kingdom can hear it. He says, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. Can you imagine? I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you from one city and one from a city and two from a family. I will bring you to Zion, to my city. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, there shall, they shall no more say, oh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, which is what they were saying at this time. They were kind of using the ark of the covenant like a, like a good luck charm. Oh, we're safe. We've got the ark of the covenant. He says in that day, they're not going to talk about a wooden box. What they're going to talk about is this. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. That means God will be there. He will put himself right in the midst of his people. All nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. What a gracious God. They shall no more be stubbornly following their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. He just keeps going. He says, how I would have set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage beautiful of all nations, and I thought you would call me my father, and you would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband. So have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Look at verse 22. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. That's the heart of God for his people. After all their faithlessness, After all the centuries, uh, all the hotel rooms, all the green trees, all the, the high places, all the stuff that they'd done, just time after time after time, unfaithful, and yet God says, come back. Literally there, what he says is this, just a few words. He says, turn, you turners, and I'll heal your turniness. Isn't that beautiful? 
turn you turners, you people that have this tendency to turn away, turn back to me and I'll heal you for your tendency to turn. I'll heal that. Just turn back to me. Just acknowledge we've sinned. We're so sorry. Lord, we need you. We're yours. This is kind of like the gospel, isn't it? That a people who are so blessed can turn their back on God and God says, turn back to me. If you'll accept my gift, if you'll accept my love, I will forgive you and bring you home. I'll bring you into the family. That's what he's saying 600 years before Christ to this nation. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. And their response, behold, we come to you. For you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains. Empty. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe you've experienced that. Experience where the world says to you, hey, come here, try this, do this, this will satisfy. And it looks like a succulent feast of the finest food. And you go for it and you dive in and you find yourself like chewing on sand and you go, that was disgusting, that was empty, there was nothing there. Why did I do that? Maybe you've done it again. Maybe you've done it again. And you know what God says? God says, just turn back to me, you turners. I'll forgive you your turniness. I'll heal it. Just turn back to me because God is an infinite fountain of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. We we just had Easter. We thought about Jesus being given, the son given to die on the cross so that as he's dying there on that cross, he's paying the penalty for our sin and inviting us back into relationship with God. Such a profound but simple message, so powerful. That's the ultimate demonstration of the kind of love God has that he would give up his son in order to win your heart back to him. But here in Jeremiah, there's a powerful image, isn't it? A husband who has been betrayed again and again, every night, again and again and again. And he's willing to forgive and he's willing to welcome home, and he's willing to embrace again. That's the love of God for us. Because in our own way, that's kind of the way we are. Our tendency is to turn away. Our tendency is to make crazy choices, to do crazy things. I mean, crazy as in hideous sin, but also crazy as in real arrogance and pride, like I can handle life. How offensive is that to God? And yet God says, I, I'm waiting for you. Just turn back to me and I will heal your turning awayness and I will embrace you and I will bring you home. I'll be your father. I will be your husband. I will be your friend. You can be in my family. That's the grace of God. That's the kind of God that we have. That's why we're so passionate here about all being transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity because there's nothing else in this world that can compare to his love. And so how are we going to be a supernatural community? It's going to be as we spend time with him. As we look to him, as we remember what he's given to us, how he has loved us, that we will be then able to forgive one another when the inevitable offenses occur. That we'll be able to reach out and give to those who don't deserve it. Because that's exactly what God has done for us.